Back in 1888, there was a man that woke up, read the newspaper, and found his own obituary had been printed. I know that may sound a little strange, but it's a true story. Alfred uh, Nobel uh, read his obituary, which was uh, meant to be for his brother, Ludwig, who had died of a heart attack, but the French newspaper misunderstood that it had been Alfred who had died. You see, he was a well-known uh, individual. In fact, he was the inventor of dynamite. And in fact, the article referenced him as the dynamite king, a great industrialist who had made uh, quite a fortune uh, from explosives. And as he read this obituary, he was getting the opportunity to see what the world thought about his life. And he actually was not pleased at all because of the references that were, that were given to him. It, it, it said that his, the purpose of his life was developing new ways to, and I quote, mutilate and kill. And he was horrified. He thought, that is not what my life has been about. They, they've not put anything in here about how I have sought to break down barriers in between individuals and even between countries. And, and his ideas for peace were, were not even given any recognition whatsoever. Instead, he was described as a merchant of death. And he asked himself the question, is this really how I'm going to be remembered? And so at that point, he resolved to make known to the world that the true meaning and purpose of his life was not about death, that in fact, it was about peace. And he would leave his fortune to be the final disbursement to, uh, to set up an endowment of annual prizes given uh, to outstanding contributions in various fields, but most uh, uh, famously known for uh, the cause of world peace. Of course, it's now called the Nobel Peace Prize. Again, Alfred was grieved over the reputation that he had, and it motivated him to dramatically change the legacy that he would leave behind. Today, we're going to read about a church, a church that had a rather good reputation in their case, at least in the eyes of the world, but the character of the church did not match its reputation in the eyes of the Lord. I invite your attention to Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to see an assessment that is given by Jesus noting a significant gap between the reputation of the church and its reality. In fact, he tells them this, you think you are alive, but really you are dead. See, the assessment was bad news. But even within that, there was a message of hope given to them. He offers a solution and is telling the church it's not too late for them to turn around. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, says, Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Let's begin this morning by thinking about the church of Sardis. And let's see the assessment that Christ gives them, that there is a difference between a reputation and reality. 
And that really is going to be the focus of what we see coming out of verse number one. Let's think for a moment about the town of Sardis because I think it helps us understand uh, the church of Sardis in, in, uh, in, a, in a greater way. Sardis, of course, is near the other churches that we have been looking at over the last number of weeks, all seven churches in uh, the first few chapters of the book of Revelation are all located in, in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, this particular uh, town of Sardis is uh, 35 miles southeast of where we were last week in Thyatira. It's also 50 miles east of Smyrna. And so it just gives you the idea that there's not a great amount of distance in between uh, these, these churches and that the letters they were given uh, indeed would, would circulate and would be, would be shared with other congregations as well. And as we know, part of what is stated in Revelation is that, that the letters are for all of us, that anyone who would hear, anyone who would heed the words uh, uh, of, of these letters would find benefit. This is the fifth one that we've looked at, the fifth church. We've got two more left. But uh, the town of, of Sardis was uh, rather interesting in that it was a town with two locations. Uh, it was built uh, right alongside Mount Tamolus. And, uh, and so it had uh, part of its development on top of the mountain and part of it at the base of the mountain. And so in the ancient times, cities that had, that had mountain, uh, a mountain close by would use the top as a, as a fortress. It would use, they would use it as an area that would be part of their defense. And this was certainly true for the town of Sardis. They had, they had development at the top of that mountain. You can see it in the, in the background uh, of this picture. Uh, in the foreground, you see uh, a fifth century building and it was actually a local church. And so it would have come in, obviously, years after uh, uh, the, uh, the letter to the church of Sardis, but I think that's interesting. And then you also see the, the two columns there, which would have, would have been uh, much older. Sardis was an interesting uh, place. In fact, uh, it is credited as being the first location where coins were ever made. And so uh, when you think about uh, just the history of currency, it was about the 7th century BC where, where coins were, were, uh, were made there. In fact, uh, quite a bit of gold was discovered in a nearby river. And uh, Sardis became the capital of what was known at the time as the Lydian Kingdom, and they produced uh, its own. They produced their own currency. Sardis is also known as the possible birthplace of Aesop. If you think of uh, the the fables of Aesop, this may have been where where he was born. And so the city had quite a history. And it also had significant wealth. And when you think about its location and its fortress, it also had quite a bit of, uh, of resources. And so um, when you think about, uh, about all of that, people, people uh, speculate that it may have been pride that led to the downfall of the city of Sardis. In fact, it was attacked and, and placed under siege in two different uh, occasions, two different times, which would have been surprising because they would have thought they had an impenetrable fortress at the top of that mountain. And so they let their guard down and they were overrun on two different occasions. And some have said that maybe the church of Sardis suffered from a similar fate, the fate of self-sufficiency. You see, I think there's a word here for the church in America that, that resources uh, and strengths, they can certainly, certainly be blessings that God has given, but they can also tempt one 
to place an inordinate amount of trust. Maybe in the town of Sardis, they were placing trust in their gold or their wealth or their natural fortification. Maybe the church followed and began to place its trust in what it could do, its own resources and ability. You see, there's a danger here for the church to be aware of. Let's look again at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is similar language to what we saw several weeks ago in Revelation chapter 1, this idea of the seven spirits of God that might, might kind of trip you up and say, wait a minute, I thought there was one Holy Spirit. And, and there is. This, uh, this understanding of seven spirits was speaking of, of perfection, using the, the number seven, speaking of complete and perfect uh, spirit of God. Uh, in fact, uh, we also uh, see the, the idea of the seven stars. And as we think about, about the seven churches, we were reminded in chapter one that each of the, the churches had a messenger. And some have uh, translated that as, as an angel that's been assigned to each of the, the, the churches. Some have seen it as a messenger, a human messenger or, or teacher in the church. Uh, but uh, that's what the, uh, the seven stars, again, are alluding to. As you continue reading, the assessment comes at the end of verse 1. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Just think about that for a minute. The reputation of a church. Do churches today have reputations? When you think of different churches, what comes to mind? Uh, what type of reputation does a church want to have? Uh, in its community. I think that there's a lot of different metrics that can be used. Sometimes uh, the, uh, uh, the idea of an attendance number is the measure that one uses to determine if a, if a church is alive or not. Uh, others uh, might, might use activity uh, as a measure, meaning that if there's a lot of activity, it must be a sign of life. For others, it might be that a church has influence in the community or influence in the world. And maybe for others, it's the, the idea of relevance. Is the church relevant to the common uh, uh, thinking of, of the age? And so, so you think through these different metrics, and you might, you might it, it, in some ways realize that they're not necessarily negative things. I mean, when you start thinking about attendance, I mean, certainly a church desires to reach people, a church desires to grow. Um, but if, if that becomes the ultimate measure of, of, of what a church is about, what might happen. I can remember when I was serving as a youth pastor in St. Joseph, Missouri years ago that, uh, you know, I was trying to, to work with the, uh, the middle school and the high school students, and, and there was uh, uh, some of my students that on occasion wouldn't, wouldn't show up on a Wednesday night. And so I began to, to probe a little deeper to figure out what was happening, and, and there was a really large church in town, and... Uh, that wasn't very far away, and the youth pastor had a promotion going on that he would give away a $100 bill every Wednesday night to the student who brought the most visitors. That was hard to compete with, right? Uh, nor did I feel like I should compete with it, but I'm just saying that in his mind, and maybe in the mind of, of, of their church, what was the ultimate measure? It might have been numbers, right? Possibly. And so, uh, so again, sometimes it's attendance, sometimes it's activity or influence, all kinds of reputations. But, uh, but each of those metrics, even though they may not be negative in and of themselves, they can become the primary 
desire of a church? What about a, a church that, that seeks to, to be relevant? You know, certainly you want to have a relevant voice in the, in the world around you, but if, if relevance is the ultimate priority, what can happen? You can be tempted to adjust or change the message for the sake of relevancy. And so again, there, there must be some desire, some, some purpose that goes beyond uh, these. And that, of course, is to not lose the main focus of the gospel. Otherwise, a church may be led to think that, that they, they can just trust in their own power or in their own ability. And I would say even as the fellowship of Wildwood, that we have to guard against thinking that ministry can be successful uh, by our own resources, by our own ingenuity. Uh, there's, there's a lot that I'm, I'm certainly grateful for. I'm, I'm glad that we are a, a debt-free congregation. I'm glad that, that as, we, as we look around our, our church family, there's, there's lots of experience and, in ministry and in, in serving and in caring for others. All of these things are, are good things. But if they become primary, we could lose our focus and begin to think like the people of Sardis did, that we are self-sufficient rather than remembering our dependency upon the Lord Jesus. You see... Our hope must always be in Christ alone. Our future is, is staked on Christ alone. In fact, in the words of Jeremiah, our boast should be in the Lord alone. He said in chapter 9, uh, as a prophet of the Lord, this is what the Lord says, verse 23. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. So do you see what the Lord was teaching the people at that time? to not place an inordinate focus upon their own wisdom or strength or resources, but to remember that God is the great God. He is the one that, that does the things that only he can do. Paul, in fact, referenced this verse, and he applied it in a New Testament uh, way in speaking to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, it's about him, and it's about what he has done, and it's about us placing our hope in what he can do, and he alone can do. And so again, it's about perspective. What's the point? Certainly a church wants to have a good testimony in the community. Certainly we're not against that at all. But nothing is to overshadow the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, and especially in his church. And if we are ever led to believe that we've got this, that we've got this on our own, that's the, same, that's the same thing that I believe happened in Sardis. 
that pride will have the same deadly effect today as it had back then. And so for us, it's the understanding, let us be on guard against self-sufficiency. You see, in each of these letters, there's been something there for us to consider. And I believe for us, there's a, a strong word here to keep our eyes properly focused on the Lord. Again, we see the, 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 the words there in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And uh, he says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. And these are, these are striking words. It's like the autopsy of a dead church. You have a reputation in the world, but it actually means nothing. Reputation meant nothing. They were a dead church. And uh, it reminds me of the words that Jesus gave to religious leaders in Matthew chapter 23. These may sound familiar. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, the Lord is able to do something that, that we as humans aren't able to do. He is able to look on the inside. He's able to look at the heart. He's able to look in a, in a, in a deeper level and in a deeper way. And it's not the outside or the external that matters to the Lord. He primarily cares about what is on the inside. Let me ask you a question this morning. One of those questions that I want to ask, but I don't want you to answer out loud. Does that make sense? Okay. How many of you here this morning consider yourself above average? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> Just think about it. Do, do you consider yourself to be above average. According to a recent study, if you're like most people, you're way above average. In fact, uh, on almost everything, uh, it's called the state of illusory superiority. And it means that we tend to inflate our positive qualities and abilities, especially when we compare ourselves <laughs> exactly, to those around us. We all of a sudden have these superior capabilities. There's been a number of studies that, uh, that reveal a tendency to overestimate ourselves. Uh, one of them was a, a large sample of high school students. And the question was, how well do they get along with their peers? And hardly any of the students rated themselves below average in being able to get along with their peers. As a matter of fact, 60% of students believed that they were in the top 10%. And 25% rated themselves in the top 1% with the ability to get along with others. And you might be thinking what I'm thinking. This is statistically impossible, right? Uh, one researcher summarized the data by saying, it's the great contradiction the average person believes he is a better person than the average person, if that makes sense. The tendency, again, is to think too highly of ourselves. What's the danger? Might it be the chief barrier that separates people from God? 
Just think about the, the dangers of pride, what it whispers in our ear, what it tells us about ourselves, what it tells us about God, and whether or not we need the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior or as a Master and Lord. You see, this, this, uh, this, this idea of, 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 of assuming the worst in others but, but the best in ourselves can, can actually blind us to see our need for a Savior. This is the, the idea of being a self-sufficient church. Of course, we see the example here from Sardis. The assessment is our first point, reputation versus reality. But let's keep reading. Verse 2. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief. And you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. So we see the urgency there, don't we? The, the, the idea of the return of Christ at, at any time. Well, this leads us to our second point, the call. Steps toward spiritual renewal. Even after the church declares, excuse me, even after the Lord declares the church is dead, he then offers a word of hope and says it's not, it's not too late. There's still an opportunity to, to turn things around. And it reminds me that he is a God of resurrection. And, and, and he offers to us new life. And he offers to this church the opportunity really to be resurrected into new life. That's the, the, that's the opportunity in front of them. And in fact, if you look at these verses carefully, there are really five commands that Jesus gives the church in these two verses, five commands. So I'd like for us to think about these five commands. It's only a three-point sermon, but there's five points in this one. It's, it's kind of like a sermon within a sermon. It's like, like a bonus day, right? Yeah, I know you weren't thinking that either, but that's okay. Let's look at them quickly. The first one is this, be alert, wake up. It means to, to be spiritually alert, is it, it's not a time for, for indifference. The church could not afford to be asleep when there was such peril around it. And I ask you, could the church today at times be lulled into a slumber? Do you remember Jesus even telling the disciples, right, that they needed to, to stay awake, his followers to stay awake? We remember parables and, and teaching about his return coming like a thief in the night. How many of us are living in light of his return? How many churches are ministering in light of his return? You see, there's a call here to not be lulled asleep, but to spiritually stay alert and to keep that as a priority as we live our lives. Second, we see there is a call to strengthen what remains and it reminds me of, of like a, uh, the idea of a, of a fire that's almost out. Maybe you've had a, a campfire that burnt out overnight, but there were still a few embers left the next morning. And uh, you began to, to fan those embers and to, to, to work on it. And, and sure enough, you could, you, could, you could bring that fire back to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to life again. And that's really the picture here. The church was, was needing to strengthen what little was still remaining. 
It was like they were called to rehabilitation, not a, not a physical rehabilitation, but a spiritual rehabilitation. And even though there wasn't much that was left, they were not to give up. They were to prioritize, once again, their spiritual health, their spiritual life. And when we think about spiritual health, it is a reminder that we have a responsibility to do our part. We know that it's God who gives life, it's God who gives strength, but he has also called us to take our own responsibility in pursuing him. Sometimes the analogy is given that, that, that God gives the increase, God gives the blessing, but, but that he expects the farmer to do what? Till the soil, prepare the ground, sow the seed, nurture the crop. There's responsibility, even though ultimately God is the one that gives the harvest. Similar for us, as we think about our own spiritual lives, we have a call to commune with the Lord. We are to spend time in the Word. If we, if we neglect the, the personal reading and feeding upon God's Word, we, we ourselves will be spiritually lethargic. If we neglect time with Christ in prayer each day, going before Him and, and bringing needs before Him and praising Him and, and, and coming, coming before Him with requests, if that part of our lives are neglected, we know that our spiritual life as well will grow weak. In fact, you may have heard that, that this coming Wednesday night, we have a course called Igniting a Passion for Prayer. And it's a, a very practical course just to help uh, have tools available in, in thinking through uh, one's prayer life and to, to see that reinvigorated again. So if, if any of these aspects of spiritual growth or spiritual health are neglected, we have a call to strengthen what is weak. And so even for us today, we see that the church in Sardis must strengthen what remains. What is it for us? What is it that we must strengthen? It's kind of like physical exercise. No one can go to the gym for us, right? We can't just pay someone to go and do the work. Same with our spiritual lives. We've got to do it on our own. We have responsibility before the Lord. And that's what he tells the church, to strengthen what remains. Third, he says, remember, remember the truth, specifically what you have received and heard. They needed to go back to the fundamental truths found in the word of God. They needed to reaffirm their belief about Christ, about what he had done, to reaffirm their, their need and dependency upon him, that they indeed could grow and serve appropriately. They needed to remember what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, what happens? Some people have departed from the faith. And let's make no mistake, that is a temptation for every generation. Not just Paul and Timothy, not just the church of Sardis. It's for us here as well, that if we don't remember and hold on to the truth, we can also find that we could slip. Look at the fourth one. We are not only to uh, believe the truth and to remember it, we are also called to live it. In fact, the, the phrase there is to 
keep it. It reminds me of what uh, James said. He said that we're to be doers of the word, right? And not, not merely hearers. This is a call for applying the truth of God's word to everyday life, every situation, every opportunity that's in front of us, taking the truth that we've heard, that we've believed and received, and now applying it in the decisions and in the way that we think about situations in front of us. And finally, number five, we are called to repent of all known sin. Repent. Repentance is an agreement with God. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that results in a change of action. You may say that again. Two of you do. Okay, all right. For those two that want to hear it again. Repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that results in a change of action. And that's so important because repentance isn't just something that happens at a time of conversion. We are called to live lives of repentance. That any time we see that, that our thinking or our desires, our passions, our attention move away from what is God's plan and his desire, we are to turn around. We are to repent. We are to agree with God. And that that change of mind can lead to a change of heart and, of course, impact our actions. It was a time for the church of Sardis to make things right with God. Juan Sanchez says it this way, we must stop thinking we can produce life in the church by our own strength, creativity, and programming. Instead of pride, we should cultivate humility. Rather than boast, we should give thanks for the life we have in Christ by his word and by his spirit. See, that's the focus that the church of Sardis and the church of America and the church at the Fellowship of Wildwood needs to hold on to with a humble demeanor to realize our dependency upon the Lord. You see, if the church in Sardis wasn't alert and if they didn't make the necessary changes, they would lose their witness. They would die. They would lose that idea of being the light on the lampstand. It would be game over for the church of Sardis. Well, let's read the end of the letter, beginning in verse 4. Excuse me, picking back up in verse 4. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So that's the ending of the letter. And we again find hope. We find hope because there are a faithful few. And we see that he, that he mentions them and he provides this image of clean garments. And of course, we, we know that that is not brand new imagery. We think about, about white robes. We think about this idea of being forgiven of sin and, and all that Christ has accomplished. 
And beyond that, the people of Sardis, when, when they heard those words, they might have thought about, about a, a triumphal procession that, that would have been known in the, in the days of the Roman Empire, that, that, that when there was a military victory and this procession would take place, that oftentimes those in, that, that were the, the victors would wear white robes of triumph. And it's as if the Lord here is writing about spiritual victory. And he's, of course, the one that, that clothes people in white robes. It's his work. It's what he has done. But for these that are faithful, these who know him and walk with him and serve him, they are the ones that yet again are being called the conquerors or the overcomers. Again, each of these letters speaks about those who are victorious. Now, you might wonder, well, what, what happened in the church of Sardis? There's a little bit of information that we've been given that's uh, been pieced together. The, the most well-known person from the church in Sardis that uh, lived after uh, the days of, of this letter uh, is, uh, is a, a man known as Melito, and he was a, a Christian uh, apologist, a defender of the faith. Uh, he did uh, write quite a bit, and, and some of that has been found, and, and fragments and pieces have been put together to give an idea. And he actually has written some commentary on the book of Revelation. And he, uh, he lived in the, in the second century, so it's, it's likely that, uh, that he had read this letter and heard the letter to the church of Sardis. And so it appears that the church at least in the days after the letter, did indeed survive. But I want to close the message today with the phrase that is found in verse 5. It references the book of life. And that may not be the first time you've read that. In fact, if you've read through the book of Revelation, it's mentioned six different times. Sometimes referred to as the book of life. And what's the other phrase that's sometimes used? The Lamb's book of life. And it gives a picture of a, of a citizen registry. That if you think about these old Roman towns, that they would have, they would have had a registry of those who were, who were citizens. And it's as if that same picture is being applied to a heavenly city, a heavenly registry. Those who are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. He says their names are written in the book of life. You see, some people are more concerned about their reputation here on earth than ensuring that their name is found written in the book of life. And I want to tell you today, there's not a more important position you could be in than to have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And how does that happen? That happens by, by submitting to him, surrendering to him in faith. Just as we've been talking about since the beginning of the message, it's not our effort, it's not our activity, it's not our abilities or wisdom. It's all upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And those who would believe in him and ask him to, to forgive of sin, to bring new life, to give this gift of salvation. When that happens, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And maybe for some of you today, you're thinking about that. And maybe some who are watching online are thinking, is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? 
And I don't ask that as a question to call anyone to doubt their salvation. I offer it as a question to say, are you invited? Have you come? Have you heard and responded to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, that's why he came. He came so that he could bring life. As he says in John chapter 10, that he could give life that's abundant. And that all who would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so I invite you to consider that today. In fact, uh, we are bringing back something that we've not done in a couple of years. We've got some tables that we've placed along the sides of the, of the room. And uh, yeah, there's no one, no one there ready for you yet, but there will be. And if you would like to ask someone today about what it means to follow Christ as Savior, we'll have people waiting there ready to talk with you. Or maybe, as Stephanie said at the beginning of the, of the service today, maybe you've come in with a burden. Maybe there's something taking place in your life and you'd love for someone just to put a hand on your shoulder and pray with you about, about something taking place in your life or in the life of a loved one. We want to make sure that you have an opportunity before you leave today to have someone simply pray with you. And so that'll take place as the service is ending. You can make your way to those tables if you have a, uh, a commitment or if you have a need in some way that we can assist with. Well, at this time, let's take uh, time together to pray over what we've read from Revelation 3 today, asking for God to take his word and to apply it to us. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the book of Revelation. We thank you for the words that were given to the church of Sardis as well as the church today. And God, I pray that, that we have had ears to hear. I pray that you will take the word that you have given and that you will apply it to each of us. Lord, help us to, to look within and to see not, not just what the world thinks of us or what the reputation is externally, but to think about what is taking place inside, inside our own spiritual lives, to look at our spiritual health and see in what ways, in what ways are you calling for us to grow? In what ways should we step forward in faith? So God, again, take your word, use it, apply it to each of us. And Lord, I, I pray especially for any that, that are thinking about this understanding of the, the book of life. That, Lord, this may be a day of salvation for them, that they would draw near to you and accept this free gift that comes by trusting in Jesus. So, Lord, may you do your work today. May you bless this church family as we seek to honor you and look to you in all things. We pray this in the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said.